Welcome to STEAM Powered, where I have conversations with women in STEAM to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. My guest today is Annette Hester. Annette is an economist, policy strategist, and data and digital innovator who has worked with governments, think tanks, and other multilateral institutions. She heads the Hester View, where they use data visualization to meaningfully interpret and communicate the wealth of data that we have available to us in ways that can inform and advise strategic policy. Join us as we talk about how data visualization can lead to a wiser and kinder world and Annette's unique journey to data sciences. Welcome, Annette. Thank you so much for joining me today on Steam Powered. It is wonderful to have you on today. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Oh, I'm looking fabulous. forward to our conversation. Oh, me too. I'm really looking forward to especially the little teaser that you gave me before we started recording. It's wonderful. <laughs> so, well, you started off in economics, but, you know, not really. How, what happened to get you to where you are now? I mean, to situate everyone, um, I'm born and raised in Brazil. And for the last 40 some odd years, I've lived in Canada because I ended up, my life ended up very crazily. I ended up marrying a Canadian, moving to Canada and ended up in a completely different life that I never imagined. But at some point in my life, I, I already had kids. I decided that I really, um, I had a bit of a panic moment. I had young kids and I thought, wow, one day the kids are going to grow up. They're going to leave the house and I'm going to look at my life and I'm going to say, when did I stop? When did I abdicate me? When did I stop thinking about me? Like what happened to me? And I went kind of panicky and thought, well, I'm totally dependent on, on my husband and Brian and I'm, I'm an immigrant. I don't speak English that well. I spoke English well, but I couldn't write really well. And I thought, wow, this is not going to bode well for me. This is not going to be. So I went back to school. I was uh, in my late 30s, 40s. I went back to school and uh, learned um, to write English. I took English 30, which was high school English. And I took then essay writing and I rediscovered my love for school. I've always been a good student, but I had forgotten that I loved to, to, go, in, to go to school. So I went back to school and uh, decided to do an undergrad uh, in economics, which I hadn't finished when I was young. And then did an undergrad and a master in economics. And I did that while the kids were little. And we all went to school at the same time. And we would come home and we sit around the dinner table and did homework together. And that's what I did for seven years. And wow. that was sort of one other career. Uh, but before that, I had already a bunch of other careers. I was a tour guide in Rio. I was a hippie in Peru. I 
have a degree in fashion design. Oh, that's and, amazing. Yes. And I did fashion design and I did collections and on leather in suede. I had my own label. Um, I taught fashion merchandising. Um, and all those things uh, became tools in my bag. I have like a bag of tricks with a bunch of different tools. And I've never imagined how everything would come together. So fast forward to now uh, in the last 10, 15 years where I run a company called the Hester View, and we specialize in data and in data structuring and in data visualizations and how to share information in the digital age. But, but a screen is a visual format, and a visual format requires composition. And I'm trained in fashion design, in composition, in color, yes. in all of those elements that are part of the history of fashion, that are part of, of a visual composition, what you do with your eyes and how you please your eyes and how you design for humans. It is. That's right. So a computer-human interaction and designing for humans and designing for a visual space made me, without realizing, bring back all of those learnings and all of those tricks that I learned in fashion design. And in economics and in writing and in the career I had from economics as an analyst and head of a uh, uh, executive director of a research center, how to take information and how to write with the flair of a journalist, not for academic purpose. And then how do you reach people with information? So all those elements became part of this narrative and what I do now, except that when I was way back then, if you told me that we would work in a digital world, that I would be talking to Australians or to global <laughs> audience about what it's like to evolve in this field, I would say, not happening. You're dreaming technicolor. It's not going to happen. Like, yeah. I couldn't even imagine it, phantom it. So... It, it's a really neat thing for anybody that is starting to think, yes, you will do a lot of different things and all of them will come together. And That's right. you can't imagine now how everything is going to fit. There's a bit of magic. There's a little bit of that comes together. But I think most important is that you can do it all, you can't do it all at the same time. Yes. Uh, and that there's nothing you can't do. It's just, uh, it doesn't necessarily um, stem or the digital or um, doesn't have to be uh, intimidating because yes. you can start 
with art. It's connected to art or it's connected to language or it's connected to knowledge or it's connected to psychology or it's connected to any number of fields. Yeah. And it's finding the one that speaks to you. Exactly. And it's one of the reasons why I actually, you know, made this about STEAM, not just about STEM, because the art, no matter if it's visual arts or liberal arts, you know, you, you incorporate so many of these aspects of humanities into the sciences, even if you don't intend to originally. And as you, you know, immediately evident with your career, you've taken all these amazing skills in aesthetics and design and incorporated it into data sciences. And you, know, you, you have to incorporate the two. You must, because what the way I look at it is we live in a world uh, with overwhelming amount of data and information, yet more information has not translated into more insights. That's we right. We are easily overwhelmed by the excess of and what's available to us. And we are often not knowing which way to turn and what to trust and how to go about finding what's meaningful to us and to what we are trying to learn. And when we, from the other side, are trying to give and share information, we are also trying to share information in a way that will touch people, that will speak to people, and that will create a visual space that is not intimidating, that creates yes. a visual space that allows people to explore and to feel adequate. Because if you go into a screen that have so many options that which you don't know what to choose, the problem is not you, that you are inadequate. The problem is whoever designed it didn't do a good job yes. designing it. So I find that artists are the best ones to design spaces that touches you. Because their skills are developed to communicate, to engage with people in different ways and to engage with all sorts of people. Correct. And to engage from, a, from the sense not from mm. the brain. So That's right. you're trying to engage from a sensorial perspective because we are absorbing this information first visually. Yes. Or by sound, but with a sense, not with a brain, so to speak. Yes. So exactly. we have to transition from the system one, sort of the, the very fast decision-making into a system, too, of quiet deliberation, of exploration of space. Yes. And to transition from one space to the other, art and touching you in that emotion that make you take a step back is the most effective way. Makes you reflect. And then puts you also in a receiving mode. So when we talk to the designers, when I work with the designers on the team, we are specific to say, can we create 
an empty space that will allow our audience, our user, the person who is acquiring this information, to take a big step, not be overwhelmed, say, mm, I'm going to have to invest some time to understand this. Yes. But I can do it. I am sure that this information is at my reach. Yes. So, yes, I'm going to have to pay attention. And yes, I can. So I'm very conscientious of that. And I think that to get there, I need the artists. I need those who are uh, very good at and who have specialized in reaching people that way. That's right. So, uh, so I think that that is the digital age will require really multi-level skill team. And I really mean it because yes, I need the coders, but I need designers and I need designers of uh, a user space, but I also need graphic designers that create visual spaces. That's it. And I need storytellers and I need data specialists. So I need all of those people to work together. Yeah, because you, you are communicating a narrative. You, you're trying to craft this story out of this data, this raw information. Even when you put uh, a data set out in a visual format, you have to curate it because you have a, a map, maximum number of variables that you can present. So how you present your information responds to a system of narratives Yes. That you have to determine. So any data set is curated one way or the other. So then you need curators. The people who can, you know, define what is the meaningful part of what you need to look for. Correct. And how are you going to tell that story? And how do you extract that story? What are the stories you want to extract for that information? And how do you use terms that people understand that mean something? Yes, because you've got all sorts of different backgrounds and levels of education and right. you know, literacy as well. I have a good example. We were doing uh, a visualization that is open to the public so on the, is on the Canada Energy Regulator. And it's about incidents that happen in Canadian pipelines. So uh, we, the, the database where this visualization comes from uh, has 200 columns and it's got a basic cause, a main cause, a principal cause, and a basic cause. And I'm looking at the engineer and I said, Andrew, what's the difference between a basic and a main cause? Like, what <laughs> and he was explaining it to me and I said I don't get it and he'll explain it again and I said sorry I still don't get it so Andrew was just ready to scream so he just <laughs> got really frustrated and he looks at me and goes Annette this is what happened this is why it happened I went okay 
Thank you. <laughs> Our columns are what happened, why it happened. Yeah. Because that, <laughs> it, I, yeah, like I understand that. If that's you all tell you me, to say. It, it's that's all you needed to, to say. Point. <laughs> right. But for him, it, it took it took him to get to that level of frustration because to him, basic and immediate and all this were perfectly understandable concepts. And it's part of his domain language as well. So for him, it was common sense because he's just surrounded by that terminology and that context all the time. Correct. And I'm like, <laughs> I think to me, you're losing me. But when we put now the regulator has the 200 column for all the specialists that are like Andrew, but they also mm. have a visual data set that is published at the same time as the other one gets published, where you or anybody can access the information with columns that say, what happened? Why it happened? <laughs> there was a release. Yeah. What was the incident about? When did it happen? Which are all storytelling, you know, headings. Like the, this is the summary of, you know, your, your premise, your meet, your journey, your ending. Like it, it's all there for a proper narrative. Correct. And then you can tell a story because you can sort of start piecing it and, and anybody can do it. So in order to do that, you need all those talents. Don't ever count yourself out and shoot yourself in the foot because that's one of the things that I see uh, young people, but particularly young women, doing all the time is uh, psyching themselves out. Yes, that so much. <laughs> it's, um, so two things that I have to say. Look in the mirror and then be as nice to that person in the mirror as you are to your best friend. You never <laughs> talk to that person in a way that you wouldn't talk to your best friend. Because yes. it is your best friend. Come on, be nice, be gentle, be kind. <laughs> yes. To your best friend, which is you, right in the mirror. Second, one of the things that I've most experienced, I've been in many, many hiring panels. So, and of women in technology and in, at the Inter-American Development Bank Energy Division, at, in the government of Canada, in the government of Alberta, in, in many situations. And when we are hiring in a panel on for a profession, uh, we put out a call and say, those are the qualities and those are the elements that uh, we are looking for. The, the qualities and the expertise we are looking for. Um, we get a bunch of uh, people that respond when we are interviewing 90% of the men, we say, okay, we can see that their qualifications meet 60% of the criteria. So we say, okay, there's 40% that is more or less. What would you do to compensate for the fact that you are missing this 40%, that there is some, some of those uh, qualifications that are not part of what you've experienced in the past. 
and 90% of the men say that's not an issue. I would do this, I would do that, and they talk about something else, and, and I got this. I've got this. This is perfect. Then we interview a, a woman who is 95% qualified. <laughs> 95% qualified. The entire interview is spent explaining the 5% that is not qualification. To justify. Explaining that <laughs> I don't want to sound like an imposter because I actually don't know 5%. So the entire interview is spent on 5% that does not meet the criteria. As if anybody that is being interviewed can offer 100% of the qualifying criteria. That's right. So no, 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 no. Do not <laughs> go to a job interview and start spending your time explaining why you don't qualify. You're short. Or the parts that you fall short. Could you please just say how wonderful you do qualify <laughs> to the 95% that you qualify? Please. Yes. <laughs> That's, yeah, that is not the first, I, I saw that coming a mile away. I've had so many people talk to me about how, you know, they, they look at, oh, uh, another one of my guests, uh, Pauline, she was saying that, you know, people applying for jobs and, you know, the men will go, oh, totally, I will absolutely apply for that. I don't meet much of the criteria, I'm going to give it a go anyway. And the women will look at it and they'll be told, you know, you should apply for this. So, no, you know, sorry, I don't meet, you know, 20% of this. It's you know, it's, it's, I'm not going to be capable of that missing 20%. It's like, you do realize a lot of people are applying who are less qualified than you, right? Like, that's not stopping them. Why is it stopping you? And that's a common thread so many places. Like, a lot of people will, you know, even in academia, they say that people don't want to nominate themselves for things. And the men will say to ask other people to nominate them because they think they'll fulfill that criteria as well. And yeah, we spend a lot of time judging ourselves so harshly. <laughs> because the idea that anyone in the STEM area, this day and age, which is so moving so fast, it is yes. so diverse that anyone who puts a criteria out has the expectation that they're going to find one person that meets all of the criteria that was put out that is not a possibility. It is oh. not humanly possible to be yes. all that is being asked in the criteria of data that people are asking. Yes. And the landscape of all the work we do, not just in STEM, is changing so quickly. And there's so much uh, multidisciplinary you know, involvement in everything these days. No one's going to be able to you know, meet all that criteria, especially when we come from um, I guess, a culture and a society where they want you to specialize and they've asked you to specialize. So you really have narrowed your focus to this one area when right now they need you to be more. To the back. So yeah. I, I urge young people to think about the fact that you're, that feel free to weave in and out into different fields. Um, be open to that and without fear because it will all connect. 
I also um, urge you to think about what makes you happy and where you work in a place that really makes you happy. Because one of the reasons, like I do quite a lot of management and advisory to CEOs and advisory to uh, high-level management. And I'm, uh, I'm pretty good at that. I, I'm a very good advisor. Yet, the place that makes me where I'm at peace is a place where I'm actually working also on the ground level of a project where I'm solving uh, actually uh, issues of what color should be, like, should we use A, B, or C, working through design issues, working through details of data issues, sort of really in that micro, micro uh, project, yeah. deep into a project. So I actually work the entire spectrum, but I work the entire spectrum because I get to envision the projects and advise the top management about it. But I also reserve a space where I can work at the ground level because yes. that's what makes me really happy. I get a lot more anxious and a lot more uh as a product of sort of the whims of people when I am in that advisory capacity and in that management and all in those high power meetings, they make me um, too much of that and I am totally off-centered. And I know that yeah. about myself. I'm, I don't do well if all I'm doing is sitting on controversial meetings one after the other. I'm like- It's exhausting. <laughs> uh, for me, it is. Some people thrive on yeah. that, not me. Some people are great on that. I'm way too emotional. I'm way too, I don't know. I you become I very invested. So I need to be, I need to have a, a, a place where we are actually solving concrete problems and mm. coming up with, in the end of the day, we have something to look at that is concrete yes. and it's done whether it's a report, whether it's a piece of writing, whether it's something that I can actually see in the end of the day, that's a really happy place to me. So whenever I'm working uh, and putting forward projects, I'm always, I know myself and I know that I need to reserve some time to be working on those things that make me happy. Yes. That put me, not just make me happy, but put me in a space where I'm at, I am at peace. Yes. Because from that position, I'm a much better advisor. When I'm in turmoil internally, I'm not as good of an advisor. And that, that makes sense. You need to be able to be in a space where you're able to create, you're able to focus and progress. Correct. And I'm able to analyze and see things without making them about me, without having yeah. 
my vibration be so high that I can't quiet it, that I can't create the quiet space I need to understand the situation that is going on and how it impacts a CEO and how it impacts somebody else. So learning about yourself and where, what are the activities and what is it that you need to do to, to find that space within you is a really worthwhile and important part of the journey. It is. So I encourage you to, all of you, to, to think about that and then be fearless because when you are working from that space, things will happen. Uh, when you put that energy out because it comes from, it's so authentic, it's so where it comes from, and that is a much more successful place and things will happen much more than when you're trying to um, fit a, a, a round peg on a square hole. Like it's yes. Just, it's a lot harder. If you can be passionate about what you're doing because you're comfortable about the space you're in, you're able to create more and you're able to be more successful at it because you will be working from a space of confidence. Yes, I think confidence is also acquired with time. It is. <laughs> and easier and practice. For me. Yes, and easier for me to say it now. I'm 65. But what I can say is that when I see the work that all of you are doing, and my daughter is 37, and when I look at her generation and and I look at the the journey uh, that I see, I think, wow, you guys are so, like, you are thinking and putting forth ideas about yourself in the spaces that I was doing it in my 50s. So that means you have, like, 15, 20 years to already live that, that I did, that I discovered way after. So I think you guys are fantastic, absolutely fantastic. Uh, and be patient, too, because uh, it takes a while to be confident. It takes a while to, to feel that find way. Find yourself. Yeah. To find yourself and, and to, you know, not to fly. But yeah, yeah, and you fly by the seat of your pants. It's okay. Everybody else is <laughs> It's not a problem. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We don't have a manual. We just have to figure it out as we go. Yeah. But if, I think that... Uh, yeah, be kind. Back to that, be kind. Be kind, yes. Be kind. Would I say this to my best friend if she came and yes. told me, I'm not sure what I'm doing? Would you tell her, <laughs> I can't piece of shit. Well, of course you don't know. <laughs> I don't think you're going to say that to your best friend. Well, not exactly in those words. And you'd probably, you know, flip it with something a bit more positive to try and get them to feel better about it. <laughs> Thank you. Excellent. Or if you do something wrong, you just go, wow, that didn't work out. That yeah, was that's a learning sure experience. Bad. Yeah. Yeah, there's going to be lots of failures, right? That's for sure. But that's, uh, I mean, I look now. I uh, was part, um, I didn't realize when it was happening. 
how much of a first adopter I was. I didn't realize yeah. it. I did it because I thought it was fun. But um, I was associated with a think tank um, called the Center for International Governance Innovation in Waterloo, mm -hmm. which was a brainchild of Jim Balsilli, the Blackberry guy, you know, the guy that, okay. that put out yeah. the Blackberry. So the yes. owners of Blackberry, way back when, um, there were two guys. One of them created uh, an institute for physics, the mm -hmm. Perimeter Institute in Canada, that is yep. for theoretical physics. And Hawking's went there, and it's, it's one of the leading institutes in the world for theoretical physics. And Jim, which is the other guy, decided to invest on the Center for International Governance Innovation. Mm -hmm. um, and I was associated with CG for quite a number of years. And we were the first think tank to have a Twitter account. And we <laughs> used Twitter from the Summit of the Americas in Trinidad and Tobago. And wow. I use Twitter because one of the kids in my life, my son's <laughs> uh, best friend, was really into this Twitter thing. And before I went to Trinidad, he said, oh, this is a real new thing and it's really fun and this is how it works. I said, that sounds awesome. Let's do it. And of course, being associated with BlackBerry and innovation and all of that, yeah. we all had Blackberries. We could download the app and and all this. We said, okay, done. Let's do it. Yeah. And ended up doing Twitter and doing blogs. But when I look now at the blogs that we did then, they're so yes. bad. They're so bad. <laughs> So bad, you can't even begin to believe how bad they were. <laughs> but look at it and go, this is how not to do a blog? Okay. Yeah. This is how now to do this? Okay, got it. <laughs> but we had no idea what the hell we were doing. Oh, well, it was back then. It was, like this, it was the beginnings of what social media was. It's, it was so new to everybody and... You know, aside from, you know, oversharing, a lot of people didn't see the scope of how it could be used. So, you know, being, you know, at your summit and like contributing to that space that early on, like it, it would have been unheard of. Yeah, no, it was just really curious because we were the summit of the Americas. It's all the countries in the Americas. They were trying yeah. to negotiate the free trade agreement and, uh, you're dealing with the ministers and the presidents and all this and all the journalists. And, yeah. and we were sort of, it was a good use of Twitter. We just didn't know what we were doing and we just didn't know what blogging <laughs> meant and how you did it well. And I mean, there's yeah. lots of elements that uh, were kind of funky, but it's basically that you just move it as you do along. And now, uh, this generation, I mean, in two days, you clubhouse, it's become a huge success and everybody <laughs> yeah. knows how to use it instantly. In, the gap 
for learning technology these days is getting narrower and narrower. Yes, but creating quality content is still not that easy. It's still a problem. <laughs> it's a challenge. I don't know if it's a problem. I find it really interesting. Yeah, and I think a call out we have with pandemic uh, moved into a virtual world, including yes. for teaching and for a lot of kids in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. And even when we go back, there will be an element that you will never be able to go back. I don't no. know what the future is going to be, but I know I can't look at the past to determine the future. The way we, we've learned to do things in the last year has changed so much. And you know, we've now like, people have developed new routines, new habits, new ways of doing things that it's, they're not going to want to let go of easily. So we're also going to have to incorporate that going forward into whatever comes next. So what I would like to put a call out is people think that creating content, quality content for teaching, for absorbing information is easy. We can go from one to the other. All of us that work in this space know that it isn't and know what it takes. So think about careers. Think about careers that take the creation of content for a young generation, for kids, for systems in a way that is really uh, well done and appealing and, and quality. Yes. I think there will be a, a, an enormous need for quality content in schools. Definitely in schools and to deliver um, a new digital age. So, and for that, you need all of those uh, attributes and all of those qualities that we talked about before. Yeah. It's not just about coding. It's about understanding. It's about content. It's about understanding how people learn and how kids learn and how you share content and how you design content and all of those elements again. And I mean, not just from the technical barrier, because we're now having to do things remotely, you're losing a lot of nuance from physical interaction. And that needs to be, you need to compensate for that in all these other new and interesting ways. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I might backtrack a bit now, actually. Um, your fashion degree, how did you get into that? And what made you want to get into that? Ah, uh, my fashion degree. <laughs> I, that was quite a while ago. I was 18, I'm 65, so that was quite a while. But I had an attraction i come from brazil and from rio and we have yeah. uh, a, a big fashion industry there but we also i also wanted to work i was looking how can i marry 
art and that art side with something that I can make money at. Yeah. How can I bring those together? And the fashion industry is something that had been part of my family. Mm. So my grandmother was a contractor for lingerie for Christian Dior. So, so there, mm. is, there is sort of some history in my family of that. But it seemed like a possible thing to do. And I had spent two years being a hippie in Peru. And <laughs> I, if I went to do a fashion design course, I was able to get my dad to pay me to do a course for two years in the States. So mm -hmm. I got to travel from Brazil, live in San Francisco or New York. And yeah. uh, basically all expenses paid to study for two years. And wow. I thought that was pretty cool. I <laughs> got accepted. Sounds great. Sounds wonderful. So I got accepted to Parsons, but I went to New York and the thought of being a broke student in New York at that time <laughs> was <Not> very overwhelming. <laughs> it wasn't appealing to me. I New York overwhelmed me. It was like, holy mackerel. Uh, although yeah. I love New York now, but it was like mm, it was overwhelming to me. And, uh, and then um, San Francisco was so laid back and so wonderful and so much more European. Like for an American city, San Francisco was so European and was so, it was much nicer. So I decided yeah. to go to school in San Francisco. And that's what I did. I did a two-year degree in San Francisco and then met my husband and kind of fell in love and decided to immigrate to Canada. But that was by chance. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so it was a search for me on how to marry that, that making a living with, with art or with something. But what I Based didn't on know, what there was available at the time, yeah. Yeah, what I didn't know, though, was that I was, at best, a mediocre fashion designer. Like, I was no good. <laughs> I, I just don't have it that good. But it took me until my 30s, almost mm. my 40s, to find out that my gift was writing. Wow. That I actually had a gift. But... My gift was writing, that I had a voice when I wrote, that I could actually write. So and what was the moment where, like, what was the thing that made you realize that? When I started writing and when I went back to school, when I had that epiphany and I went back to school and I did huh? English 30 and I did essay writing and I started oh. writing more and more. I discovered that I actually had a voice because yeah. I was writing more and more and I actually really liked it. And, and I suffered because I had to write in a foreign language and learn a whole new language. And now I speak, I write better in English than I do in Portuguese. Oh, that's I, interesting. I, <laughs> I know. And I wrote for newspapers. I, I, I write really well. And 
but it was kind of a discovery that I have a creative gift, but it wasn't expressed as a fashion designer. In the designer. way that was best, yeah. It was expressed as a writer, which I wow. had no idea. It took me forever to find. Forever. It was, it was yeah. a long journey to find that. Oh, yeah, definitely. But, you know, I, I can see how you're putting that creative outlet for writing and creation and, um, yeah, just communication now in the work that you do. But how did that go to economics? Well, economics was a different um, – I had always been interested in economics. And the writing um, – It's I have a very analytical mind and – uh, I had always been interested in how policies made and how the economy runs and how government functions. Uh, and when I decided to go back to school when the kids were little, uh, I decided I had some some thoughts and I I wanted to be able to write English properly so that I could be and speak well, so that I could be um, so that I could be accepted and respected for my thoughts uh, because I felt I was just as intelligent as all of the guys that I dealt with, and I lived in Calgary, and my husband had a consulting business in oil and gas. So there's a, a lot of money and a lot of oil and gas. And and I was just as smart as those guys. And they were making a fortune and they're dumb. And I'm like, I can't believe it. <laughs> but I was always the exotic wife, right? Because I'm Brazilian. So I'm the exotic yeah. wife. And I'm like, give it up. So I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to give, I, I wanted to be respected for what I thought. Yeah. I... So I wanted, I needed to be able to communicate and be respected for that and write properly. I wanted to be able to make real money like they did. Uh, whether I needed or not was irrelevant. I wanted to be able to do it. Mm. Uh, I wanted to be able to, and there, there was a, something really personal for me. I come from a middle class, Brazilian background. I, I have a lot of privilege as a middle-class Brazilian in a developing country. I grew up with maids and all that because I was middle-class and with parents that my only, uh, the only thing I needed to do was basically study my only obligation. Mm. And then I got married and I had a husband that supported me and in a country like Canada. So I've been privileged. Yeah. And I thought that with that privilege came a responsibility. And I then thought I need to pay back. I, there mm. is a responsibility. I, I have a debt with society because I've been privileged all my life. So I thought I need to work in public policy. I need to work in a way that I can do good to more than just my family. I have to be able to contribute. Mm. Um, and that has shaped the fact that I have always worked with multilateral, with 
uh, with foundations and with governments. I, I focus yes. my work in, in a bigger policy framework in contrast to working for the private sector. I, I, although I did some consulting for the private sector, it's never been a focus of my work. So I had those ideas in my mind and I kind of did the English and then I got accepted to university and I went uh, to the business school and spoke to an advisor and there was a kid, the kid was younger than I was by a great deal. I was, I think in my early thirties or something like that. And this kid was, it was a kid and, and said, oh no, here in the management school, we gonna tell you what you're gonna do. And I'm thinking, really? I said, no, no, I need to learn Spanish. I need history. I need this. I knew what I needed. I knew what I didn't know. Yeah. I knew what I knew and what I didn't know. Uh, oh, I also wanted to be able to go back and forth to Brazil whenever I wanted without being a holiday so that I could go back and forth to Brazil and see my family yeah. and, and not be part of my husband's and vacations and all that, sort of that I had that connection. Mm. So I kind of, and then I went to the economics department and the advisor was this amazing guy. And he said, he listened to me and what I wanted to do. And he said, okay. And he wrote down all the courses, said, I think you need to do a degree in economics and then a master's in economics. And here are the courses I think you should do. And here are the electives. He laid out a program for me. Wow. I took that program to my <laughs> master defense. He was there in my master defense. He was one of my professors. And I think there were two courses I didn't do out of 40. I think there were two courses I didn't do. And of wow. course, I just said, why do you recommend two courses? This course was silly. Like, why would you do that? <laughs> Not picking at him that he recommended 38 courses that were perfect. That were perfect. Yeah. Perfect. It was perfect. He wrote this down for me in a piece of paper. And I looked at him and I said, thank you so much. You just delivered to me exactly. Like, thank you. Thank you. This is exactly what I needed. And I asked him after, did you believe that, that I was going to do it? And he said, actually, no, but, oh, well, I, I, I did what I really believe you needed. I said, you, and you did. So That's there amazing. Yeah, but I, I really think those things happen. It did, because it's exactly what happened. Yeah. So I did economics because the business was, it was an idiot program. It was just the dumbest program ever. It yeah. didn't make any sense. Whereas in economics, I had the flexibility with the electives to do the things that I needed to do, that I thought I needed to do. Mm. And it taught me to think critically about a lot of things. I didn't know how policy was made. I didn't know the difference between a parliamentary system and a presidential system. I didn't know a lot of things. I actually didn't know yeah. a lot of things. And, and I went about learning. So it was, it yeah. was, and I'm a lifelonger learning because right now the things that I do I'm always flying by the seat of my pants 
because I'm learning yeah. about um, like data lakes uh, and webcasting and the different, like every time I turn around, I'm it's learning about new technologies and I'm learning about security and I'm learning about, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't learn. And there is not a possibility, even in my field where I've been at it for 15 years and I barely scratched the surface because it moves so fast. And there's so many so new fast. additional fields coming out of it. Yes. And and I just go, okay, I'm I'm quite happy not to know. I'm quite happy to to ask the Andrews. I didn't get it. Explain yeah. that to me again. We had a visualization at one time that didn't load quite fast and we needed to have when we're doing data visualizations in government sites, we were becoming very aware that because that data was open, that we could have bad actors that would walk in through the visualizations into our systems. Okay. Because it was a portal into your system because you're drawing data from your system. So when we are creating those visualizations that draw from big systems inside government. Mm. We create different places where that information is uh, stored you, in different yeah. formats. But as I was you can't, learning, you can't just have the direct connection to the infrastructure. You need to add all these layers of security. You need to abstract all the stuff into other areas. Yeah, correct. It's a lot to it. So there is a lot of back stuff to it, but it took me yeah. a long time to understand the actual mechanisms. So I would sit with the developers and go once again. And explain part of how this it, works. Yeah. Part of it was because we needed to create a security layer. And the mm -hmm. other part of it is because we have so much that we want to upload. And the speed of the people that are opening up could be different. So yep. we want to give time for the system to upload the information and create systems that upload fast. Yeah. So that people with slow uploading systems don't still can upload that information because they're yeah. very sophisticated. So there are many considerations. Yeah which are completely beyond my capacity, <laughs> seriously beyond my capacity. Yeah. <laughs> so when I don't know something, I just sit with those kids and go, didn't get it. Talk to they me. Explain <laughs> it. Didn't get it until they finally. And, and the interesting thing is that the process of getting somebody like me to understand it's also the process that specialists need to do to be able to explain themselves. Yes. To articulate clearly and to learn to translate complexity in a way that people can understand. Yeah. Which is we need a lot of translators thing. these days for tech. Yeah which is important for tech people to learn. It is. It's very yeah. important. 
I think yeah. that tech people should definitely be trained in English communication and in writing. <laughs> yes. yes, yes. It's got to be complementary. You can't just, you have to, even if it's an effort for you, there's a certain amount that we have to know, people that are not tech, uh, and vice versa, so that we have a rounded education. Exactly. And we're not just needing to talk to our own people anymore. We have to talk to all these other people and, you know, having to communicate all these ideas because, you know, even you know, back at the start of the big tech stuff, nobody cared about security. Nobody understood security, but now it's part of what we have to do. It's part, you know, tech hygiene is a thing that, and security is something that everybody has to participate in. So we need to, be able to communicate all of these ideas to people so that they can understand how it impacts them in a way that they understand. And I, I think this is, for instance, this is one of the things that um, we pay a lot of attention to. For instance, we've been talking a lot uh, at uh, my perch. I, I sit on the Canadian Statistic Advisory Council, on, on the Advisory Council mm -hmm. for Statistics Canada. And we think also quite a bit about how people perceive uh, the, the privacy of their data and their own <laughs> right and the collective right. And I think that COVID has brought this to the front in which how easily we abdicate of our rights when it comes to a social media platform yep. and how adamant we are that we want to have our private rights when our neighbors depend on us abdicating that so that we collectively can be better off as in COVID. Exactly. That, that has been such, it's been a very difficult thing to try to explain to people. <clears throat> I mean, um, with the, uh, we've got, our, you know, safe WA app for logging in locations and things. And so many people, it's like, I don't want to do this. I just want to fill in a form on, you know, on the piece of paper at the venue. I don't want to use my app because, you know, everyone can spy on me. It's like, do you use social media? Do you have Facebook? Do you use Google? They already know what your buying habits are. They know the kinds of things that you look at online. They know the people you interact with and they use the data about what they do online to gather more information about you. And you don't want to share your location to a government or, you know, a closed space so that we can track health and safety issues. Bingo. And you prefer, you prefer to put your private information on a piece of paper with other people putting the information on a private piece on a public piece of paper where we can see your full name and your contact details in public. That's so much more secure. <laughs> and yeah, they, it, it's, I mean, I guess for people like us, we understand that because we're around all the time. We, we have an idea about the impact of information, but again, trying to communicate this impact to people, I don't think it's been done very well. But that's the thing, right? It, it's on us to also be able to share and communicate so that people are sensitized to the fact that they are abdicated, they have abdicated 
It's just right. that their perceived return is worth it to them. Yes. They, they, they feel that that is more, the social connection for media is more important than their literal privacy. And Correct. Yeah. That for them, then they are saying, yes, uh, I'm willing to do that because the benefits that I have from Facebook or the benefits that I get from Google are worth the fact that they have my information. Whereas yep. they have this perception, perhaps, that the benefit that they get from government does not. But then I ask, who do you go when you need vaccines? Who do you go when you expect when you're falling apart, when the society is falling apart? Who do you go to get uh, support when the economy is not good? So they're all of that. Mm. So it is part also of our inability to communicate and have this dialogue or mm. this lack of dialogue about technology yeah, and about <laughs> what technology means in our life. That's right. Yeah. Lots of things that, you know, it's, we move so quickly with technology and it becomes so ubiquitous with everything that we do that we take for granted what the actual impact is. And it's not about, you know, being spied on or about giving up our autonomy, but it's about understanding how it literally will affect us and how what we do can contribute to the big data farms. And, you know, yes, every, like it can be used for nefarious uses, but everything that we create can be used for positive and negative. And it's understanding that what we do can influence both and how we can have an impact on trying to ensure that it leans more to us positive than a negative. Correct. That, um, yeah. And that we can consciously together work on the positive aspect. Yes. And then Everyone if, can contribute. if many of us do contribute to that, then our chances of being on that togetherness are much greater. Yes. That's it. <laughs> yeah. So <I> simple. So. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Tell me about what what are your your passions and your thoughts? Uh just in general or about this? <laughs> Yeah, well, so my background is in uh, software and application development. Um, I did computer science and, you know, after I finished a computer science honors degree and my honors degree was actually in, it was in psychometrics because I was interested in retention and what draws people to the area and why people leave. Because at the time uh, we had a lot of turnover you know, people were dropping out in the first semester at the end of the first year. We had people dropping out at the, in their final year. It's like, but you're so close. Why are you leaving? And that really interested me. So I wanted to, you know, and it interested one my, my supervisor. So we're trying to figure out ways of determining, you know, what makes a good computer scientist or software engineer, what attributes might actually be the ones that we have to look for when we're, you know, doing the orientation and recruitment drives. And, you know, it, 
it, admittedly some of it was soft because it was about personality and about interests, but it tried to figure out the kinds of things that made people want to come to computer science. Like, is it because you like science fiction? Is this where you want to go? Or is it, you know, purely because you're driven by the fact that, and which, which was true at the time, um, that we had a boom. So you're hoping that you're going to be the next Bill Gates, Steve Jobs. So it was, you know, it was interesting trying to figure out what made the people want to come and stay and the kind of expectations that people have when they enter that field for the first time at, you know, 16, 17, when they still have no idea what they want to do with their lives. And, you know, reflecting on that now, because when I'm, I'm doing this, because I wanted to try and figure out why people don't want to come to STEM and what makes people leave STEM, um, I realized that, you know, that's a, that's a pattern. <laughs> that's a thing that interests me. Um, but, you know, I also like art. I liked art when I was in high school and the women in my family are artists. My aunt, my mum, like they paint, and my cousins, they paint, they draw, they create things, they sculpt things. Like it's just a thing that we do. I went into, um, I liked front end work. I like things that are tangible, things that people can interact with. I'm not a very good UI designer. I can't do, um, I'm not very good with the UX stuff, but it interests me. I like that people can see and touch these things and the way they can engage with technology. It, it's all, you know, it's all very interesting, even down to industrial design or, um, accessibility, things that make things easier for people to do things in a physical way that's aesthetically pleasing and technically amazing. So, you know, those are the things that I'm interested in and I'm seeing all these amazing people doing these wonderful things. It's like, I want to learn, I want to know more. So yeah, that's where I'm coming from with all of this. <laughs> that's really wonderful because did you know that in the data visualization world, computer human interaction, data visualization, the top five out of the top five people in the field, four are women. Wow. And Sheila Carpendale, Tamara Munzer, um, you have uh, several in Canada, but you, it, it is also an area that attracts wonderful computers, women computer scientists. Yeah. Exactly for that reason that you mentioned. <laughs> Because it touches humans, and we actually like humans. As a matter yeah. of fact, not just because you like computer <laughs> science. Of course, you like computer science. Yeah, that's great. That's wonderful. And we like humans. And we yes. would like technology to serve humans so that we can have better lives. I don't want to be able to make technology uh, serve itself. So that we can have more yes. and more technology. That's completely meaningless to me. It's the important thing is that technology will create a world in which our lives are more meaningful, are better, and facilitate the way we interact with the world. That's that, right. And give us give it more meaning as yeah. well. Absolutely. So I think it's uh, it's wonderful that you're doing that, and uh, <laughs> uh, I was um, 
uh, I'm involved also in, there, there's a young, a, a man, a, a researcher, uh, R.J. Andrews, who's uh, going to put out a book on uh, Florence Nightingale. Oh. And uh, Florence Nightingale design, she was in, she was a pioneer in, in the visual data, but she yes. actually used her funds, which I didn't know that, she used her funds to partner with the guy that ended up being the head of the, the first head of statistics for the government of oh. England, for Britain, uh, in bringing the data together so that she could change uh, the way Queen Victoria in the House of Lords, in the House of Commons, uh, did policy for healthcare of the British Army. Wow, that's so amazing. So she actually used her information to change policy. And so evidence-based decisions. But he's writing a book on that. And we were just talking uh, about um, the different places where he can uh, promote uh, the books because he's doing a series of three books about two of them uh, of women um, pioneers. And I'm going here because RJ was talking to me about... Um, the Grace Hopper Conference. Well, okay. If you go to Grace Hopper, it will be in September. And yeah. it's um, Grace Hopper, uh, H-O-P-P-E-R Conference. Mm -hmm. And it's on women in STEM in wow. all kinds of areas and it's uh, a really uh, major event yeah. in the US and now with the digital we're gonna I think that they are going to look at a much bigger audience yeah that would be amazing right so you've mentioned about you know the kindness and wisdom and that's part of the vision of the HEST review but how do we achieve, I mean, we've, we've kind of touched on it before, but how do we achieve a kinder and wiser world with data visualization and, you know, being able to communicate that? Because I think that that's exactly what we were talking about, right? Is yeah. um, if we are able to look at information from that quiet place, from that place yeah. of exploration, we are going... Um, we are allowing ourselves to be uh, humans and to be ex to, to know our limitations, but also how far we can go. Yeah. And that I imagine and that I hope uh, will lead us to take the time to think about it and, and to be more um, deliberate about when we say yes or no when we analyze a piece of data that yeah. allows us to take a step back, really think about the information as opposed to jumping to the first conclusion to take our time yeah. and to learn and to learn differently and to yeah. work with government so that they publish data differently 
so that we teach uh, young children to um, explore data before they form an opinion. Inform yeah. an Doing opinion. Doing things more intentionally. Yeah. And be intentional. And I think that in itself, as we said, then we get to think about the collective. We get to be kinder. And yes. that's the hope. And I think that the more of us that are saying this and are working that way, the more we're going to make it happen. Yes, the more of a collective definitely. we are. And I think it's going to take that. It's going to take that kind of a collective. And the more we put it out there, the more, the more it is. Yeah, the more people are able to understand that there are other ways that we can, you know, get this information and, you know, digest what we've got in intentional and thoughtful ways. Right. And the, and the more generosity and the more wonderfulness that we put out, the more there's more people that benefit from that. And, and then we create a, we create a, a movement of the willing of the good. And yes. that's got to be worth something because the alternative sucks. It does. I mean, yeah, really for us to be focusing on all of the bad stuff that is going on, give me a break. That's way too horrible. It is. It just makes you feel horrible. And I'm not into feeling horrible. I'm much rather <laughs> feel good. Of course. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> Why wouldn't I? Yeah. So that's how we work. And we also... Um, the the other thing that I was thinking about um, is the ability to also work with people that you love, that you like working yeah. with, and making a point of that. So the teams that we build are teams of people that are all trying to excel because everybody is jazzed. And that's yes. always a nice thing to do. Yeah, you, you have common goals. And yes. And everybody eggs each other on and everybody's producing the best and then the other one wants to do the best and then we all want to do the best. Yeah, that, that is such a wonderful environment to be able to work in just to feel yeah. that everyone is there to uplift each other. Yeah, so we have a saying, uh, and I used in political campaign, but uh, in, in when we were working on a political campaign, but I've adopted since then. Whenever we are in a project and we people say, but, oh, I don't know what, but we couldn't, but you have to stop and rephrase with an end. Yes. So whenever you say the word, but you got to stop and you got to go back and say the same thing with an end. Yeah. Gives and... you, you know, positive and going forward. Correct. As opposed to just being able to, as opposed to just abandoning whatever it is that you were trying to do. Correct. Or putting all the reasons why you wouldn't. Yeah. So instead of wouldn't, you have a yes, and. Yes, this is a great yeah. idea. And we could also do that. And automatically yeah. shifts the discourse to a positive of ends. So yeah. encourage and It's a, it's a good thing group. to do yourself as well. Yeah. Trying to short circuit that negative thinking and the imposter syndrome that, you know, drives so much of our self-judgment. Yes, that's that mirror thing. And yes, definitely, definitely. Yeah. 
That's very well. So if um, my website uh, will be uh, www.thehesterview.com. I'm on Twitter, The Hester View. Don't use Facebook too much. <laughs> um, uh, to be very honest, I actually don't. Um, <laughs> Instagram, more personal than business. Yeah. But definitely use LinkedIn, uh, any of that. Um, be in touch. There's a way to get in touch with uh, my website or LinkedIn or Twitter or any of them. I am yeah. delighted to hear from any of you. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been wonderful learning about your journey. Such an amazing story of how you came to where you are now. Oh, thank you. Thanks for the time and for the interest. It's so much fun. But yes, thank you so much for joining me today. And yeah, I hope you have an amazing day or amazing evening. Thank you. And you have a great thank day. You. I will do. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Bye. It's perfectly fine to not know where you want to be, whether you're 16 or in your mid-30s. As with Annette and several of the other wonderful women I've spoken to, not everyone is going to have a straight path. Take chances and explore different interests, because you never know where the skills you collect may come in handy down the road, and you won't know what you're good at or love doing unless you give it a try. I've also spoken with others about the importance of critical thinking as receivers of information. But with the constant barrage going out these days, it's also important to apply these same principles to how content is generated. We need to ensure that it's created with intention and purpose, and that we're considerate about its impact. To learn more about Annette and what we discuss on this show, or to connect with us, please visit the Steampowered website at steampoweredshow.com. You can also find out more about Annette and The Hesterview at our website, thehesterview.com, on Twitter at The Hesterview, and on LinkedIn, the links for which will be in the show notes. One last thing, some of you may have noticed that the three questions I normally ask at the end of our conversations is missing from this chat with Annette. Incredibly, we ran out of time and I had to ask Annette to email those through. So if you're keen to find out about Annette's childhood reading, her hobbies, or any other advice that she might have, please check out the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more like it, subscribe to this podcast and share this with your geeky or geek curious friends. You can also support Steam Powered on Patreon and Ko-fi under Steam Powered Show the links for which will also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.